the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Seth Leapson Show. Welcome back as we head into Hour 3. It is a delight to bring back, as we do every Wednesday, our constitutional scholar and litigator, Brett Johnson. He's a partner with the Snell & Wilmer Law Firm, SWLaw.com, based here in Phoenix, Arizona. Offices around the country. In fact, he is working out of one of their East Coast offices today. Brett Johnson, thanks for being with us today. Much appreciated. Oh, thank you for having me, Seth. First Monday in October is always uh, always of interest to anyone who went to law school or who even likes old movies, I suppose. It's when the Supreme Court term starts. It's uh, starting already. It's, uh, it started on Monday and already making some interesting news. Brett, uh, specifically the newest justice, Ketanji uh, Brown-Jackson, is making some news. Talk to us about this. It's kind of interesting. It's, it's, a, bit of a, it's a bit of a head-scratcher. It's a bit of an unexpected uh, claim she's making. Yeah, and and you know it's um, uh, the, the Justice Jackson. I mean, of course, uh, she uh, brand new to, to to the bench. I don't even know if she's hired law clerk, clerks yet. Oh. <laughs> um, and uh, the, but the, she she came out, uh, um, you know, all all pistols drawn. Uh, it, usually, Justice this guy, Justice Clarence Thomas, is a, is a great example. He he did not ask a question for literally years yep. during oral argument. Um, felt that it wasn't really necessary. And actually, COVID is what encouraged Justice uh, Thomas to start asking. Asking questions, but uh, what was interesting is is that how how she did come out of the box and just kind of swinging. Um, and in the case in particular, it was called it's called Merrill versus uh, Milligan. It's in regard to the Alabama redistricting plan. Alabama did a race neutral plan and basically used traditional redistricting to change their election lines within Alabama. As a result, there was only one uh, predominantly African American district. Um, Immediately, Alabama got sued. Um, uh, the circuit court um, put a stay on the court's uh, order, and then the Supreme Court um, basically lifted the order and then held or, or and, and said no. That the, um, the 2022 maps drawn by Alabama would go forward, and then this is basically the case that would determine what what exactly Alabama is going to do, not for this election, but for the next election. But she came out. And she just basically really laid out her position in a very, um, very strong tone. And, and as one of my colleagues said, is is that there's a three-page transcript with her, just her talking no versus asking questions. Wow. And that is very, very new in, yeah. in this context. Yeah. And um, so she, she has to make that change between being an oral advocate and actually being a jurist. And I think that's going to be, even though she was a jurist for, for years and sat on the, um, uh, the circuit bench, too, it was just interesting how how she came out so strongly here. Yeah, and uh, that is odd. Three pages of her talking, because what people, it's kind of fun history, Supreme Court oral argument. I, I haven't looked at this in a long time, but each side gets what, about a 30-minute presentation? Is it still 30 minutes? 
It is 30 minutes, and but it, this lasted two hours. Yeah, it's 30 minutes, and it and, and the justices <laughs> can take up that time. It counts against you, right, if the justices are asking questions, I think. Or at least oh, absolutely, yeah, so. absolutely. And, and and if you do get filibustered, the Chief Justice Roberts does have the ability to, to give you additional time yeah. and then basically gives a very stern eye towards the rest <laughs> of the justices, like, do not interrupt this <laughs> arguer. Let, let them do their presentation. Um, same thing at the circuit benches. Uh, the most, most chief judges will give you give you a little bit of uh, discretion um, to, to make up for the filibuster. So, but it was a very long, very um, uh, interesting argument because uh, other justices would try to jump in with one question here or very small questions to provide clarification. And before the answer was even out of the lawyer's mouth, um, Justice Jackson would jump back in and yeah. and, uh, and and get back to wherever she wanted the, the argument to go. So again, very interesting. It's clear that she's going to be very active on the bench. Um, she has her views on how where the law should go. Unlike other justices who keep it very close to their vest, she is very out there and says, "I think I think it should be." And so she's almost making argument during oral argument, which usually happens in the back room when there's only the justices um, who are able to do it. So it's going to be very interesting um, how she carries on for for the rest of, you know, 20, 30 years or more. I can see Clarence Thomas thinking he's not retiring just yet. (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly right. He's getting more sulking. He was probably, like, going deeper and deeper into his chair. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Now, what she was talking about, too, was novel, or at least somewhat novel. She had an interesting originalist view, a different take of an originalist view on the 14th Amendment, if I'm picking up on what was happening. She, there, right? she was, and she was, she was picking up, and as I've mentioned on the show previously, his, um, the Supreme Court from last session really went back into history, and basically, if you're going to come before the Supreme Court, you better have arguments that are rooted in historical fact, mm-hmm. not just precedent, um, that case, how cases have interpreted those facts, but actually fact. And what she came up with was was basically the 14th Amendment was meant to uh, cure or resolve um, racial injustices dealing with slavery. Right. And since, since that was the case, that was the purpose of the 14th Amendment, that, there, uh, that any context that, that uh, laws need to be race-neutral when they're in furtherance of um, uh, racial equality, so basically the promotion of, of um, people um, breaking down the inequalities, then it, it, it's by nature not race neutral. She, she refused to get off of that question. She would, she asked it maybe four or five different times in a different way. Um, and, and that it was rooted in, in history, which I think is going to have a significant impact. And she's already come out of the gate with this argument. And because there's so many other cases on the court's docket this cycle dealing with race issues, you're going to see her cut, keep on coming back to that root issue and, and history. So if I'm a professor of legal theory, um, Brett, I listen to her t- making this this somewhat novel approach to the 14th Amendment's originalist understanding, and I'm hearing that put, I don't know, you tell me if I have this right. She's saying because the 14th Amendment was passed to overcome racial bigotry, discrimination, certainly slavery, of course, that its original intent was based on righting a racial wrong. Thus, if we take race into account now, as long or so long as it's based on righting a historic wrong, 
that would be in compliance with the original intent of the 14th Amendment. Something like that? Is that the legal theory it, she's trying to put that, down? That's, that's exactly the legal theory that she's trying to um, trying to present. And basically, she just reiterated that's not a race-neutral right. or race-blind right. idea. That's right. what she kept on reiterating about the 14th Amendment, and that it's basically you have to take into, into account race when applying the 14th Amendment. And what the Solicitor General from Alabama was trying to push is, is that, because this is about Section 2, we've talked about it before, on the election laws, and Section 2 is based with his argument was it's at war with itself and the Constitution because it basically puts race as a predominant factor um, in, in the, um, the redistricting process. And as Just, Chief Justice Roberts has said, whenever whenever you are making distinctions between race, it's a sordid affair, is yeah. how he said it before. Yeah. Yeah. And and so it's going to be really interesting. To, I, I, I can almost guarantee you she's going to have either her own dissent or a dissent yeah. that's joined by some of the other um, uh, justices on this, but it's uh, she's she's definitely laying down a marker now, which will um, impact other cases down the line. Hard to know exactly, but it seems to me, Brett, that if I take it the way you presented it and the way I couched it, she's making an argument that sounds very much like this new series of racial theories we've been um, subject to the last four or five years. I'm thinking this this well-known quote from Ibram X. Kendi, the only remedy to racist discrimination is anti-racist discrimination. The only remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination. Uh, the only remedy to present discrimination is future discrimination. Sounds like she's trying to take a version of that and implant it into the 14th Amendment as its basis because it was, in her rendering of it, meant to overcome past racial discrimination. Sounds like it. Yes. Uh, that that's exactly right, and, and as what the Solicitor General was trying to say from Alabama is is that we uh, because she kept on arguing about the historical factors, but the states have changed, yeah. and yeah. and basically <laughs> because bit, yeah. of the fluid nature of it, it doesn't make sense yeah. to be able to um, have these racial predominance um, within these different programs because they were actually for race neutrality. That mm-hmm. that was the ultimate goal, sure. and there and from his argument, when you look at the data and one of his main arguments was all of the map makers it's kind of like all the all, all the king's men could <laughs> put back Humpty Dumpty uh, all the map makers they could not come up with a compact map a map that made sense that was not gerrymandered or looked like Yugoslavia um, that it was actually something that could have worked under her her theory and she basically said is regardless of compactness you need to figure out a map where there would be predominant African Americans so that they can elect leaders of their choice regardless if you go from the top of the state to the bottom of the state. Fascinating. All right, let me take a quick commercial break, Brett. I'd love to come back and talk to you about a few more things in front of the Supreme Court and a few things that could affect uh, the Supreme Court, having to do, well, in some cases, both of them, Yale Law School. I also think as we go to break, it's going to be interesting if she wants to make an originalist argument based on the 14th Amendment. Uh, She's going to have to wrestle with some of the things the author of the 14th Amendment, John Bingham of Ohio, wrote and said. He spoke of one country, one constitution, one people. I don't think he would have envisioned using race to overcome racism. Anyway, kind of interesting. Brett and I will be right back, folks. Don't go away.
Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Brett Johnson is our guest. He is uh, with us every Wednesday. He's our constitutional expert, uh, constitutional litigator of great uh, reputation, partner with the Snell and Wilmer Law Firm, SWLaw.com is their website. Brett, uh, thanks for that overview of uh, Ketanji, uh, Ketanji, Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson's uh, first foray this first Monday in October in the first term that she's seated in. There's some other interesting things going on and around um, uh, the Supreme Court and lower courts that might uh, feed cases to it or even clerks. Clerking for a federal court uh, justice, whether it's a district judge uh, or an appellate judge or a Supreme Court justice. These are plum jobs for law school graduates. And it's not odd to see someone get a clerkship with a federal judge or a state Supreme Court judge even, and then get another clerkship perhaps at the Supreme Court. It's this interesting story, Washington Free Beacon. Twelve federal judges say they won't take clerks from Yale Law School. Fascinating, <laughs> talking of discrimination. What did you make of that, Brett? Um, it, now that is unprecedented. Yeah. Um, you know, Yale, Yale Law School has a long tradition of providing clerks to the judges, and you, you laid out the framework pretty clearly, is, is that the uh, Supreme Court justices, they usually, I've, I've, in modern times, I doubt anybody has, that, that, that they've taken somebody straight from law school. Usually you go work for a district court judge and then a circuit court judge, and then you try for the ultimate, um, you know, golden chalice, which is to go clerk at the Supreme Court. Hopefully you're not leaking any of the opinions out <laughs> that's beforehand. Still that's always bad. Right. Uh, that's not career enhancing. Let's just put it that way. Uh, but you you eventually need to get up to. Uh, uh, but those justices are, are are selecting it. So if you're not in that first grouping, either with a district court judge or a circuit court judge, you'll never even be considered by the Supreme Court. So when the federal judges are saying, and, and these are. Um, stellar judges, yeah. too, by the way. Yeah. They're, they're known as training no grounds slug. for yeah. the Supreme Court. Yeah. When they're saying they're not going to be t- taking Yale um, law students, that is that is significant and will also significantly impact Yale's rankings when it, it comes out every year because that's one of the things that are ranked. How many of your students go off and become clerks? Yeah. And then how many of your clerks actually become Supreme Court justice clerks? So... But as a way of background on that, is it, it's rooted in it's very important for any federal judiciary to make this kind of statement publicly about how why they're not going to. Usually, the judges might do it in the back of their heads, but it's never made public in this fashion. So. The, the, the fact that it is now public and that these judges have now this policy where they're not going to hire from Yale um, unless Yale changes its policies and procedures on basically public access and public uh, First Amendment rights at Yale, um, I think that that's, that's going to be telling. And one judge in particular, and it was cited in that article, uh, made, made a very good point. Yale does not have any conservative-leaning professors yeah. at all. Yeah, they've had their and, own boycott, in other words, yeah. That's, that's exactly right. And, and, and so what the, the concern is, is that to be able to be good judges, clerks, and then justices, clerks, is that you need to be exposed to the spectrum of judicial philosophy from the left, the right, the middle. And, and because you're not getting that full spectrum at Yale, even though, you know, it has a very good education program for sure, um, they, that actually is a diminishing factor as to why they'd want to hire because they want to be, have uh, clerks that are exposed to different areas of thought, and that makes perfect sense. So it's going to be interesting to see what Yale has done. 
in the past when Yale has been uh, chastised for, for these types of practices, not what we call bear hugging. You know, you either drag the person out in the middle of the street and you say, we're never going to do this again, or, or you bear hug the policy and say, we're not changing, mm-hmm. and, and good luck with that. But this is going to be um, a, a sea shift for Yale, and not just Yale, by the way. I think other schools um, are, are going to have uh, similar issues. I hope so. I mean, I, I do hope so. I, I, I think every, one of the things I'm used to seeing is every year or so you see an argument here or there or an article here or there about widening the pool from where the clerks are drawn, not just Ivy Leagues, maybe not just Ivy Leagues plus Stanford and Chicago and Tech, UT. Um, for a diversity of viewpoint and thought, it seems a little bit like you hear uh, even uh, elected officials talk about that once in a while, those that have, uh, whether it's a president or governor, those that have appointment power. Is there merit in that? I'll, I'll, I'll just tell you, when I was in grad school, um, I was thinking of staying on for a Ph.D., um, Brett, and one of my best friends gave me one of the best pieces of advice ever. He says, don't stay there. I said, why? He goes, because all your education's in California. Come to the East. I'm not saying it's better, but it is different. And I, he was right. I went to the East for my next degree. And, it, you know, it, it, there are different cultures of education. And it seems to me the Ivy Leagues uh, do inculcate or tend to inculcate, especially in law schools, one narrow area of looking at the world of law that you might get a little bit something different at some of the other law schools. Is that a fair complaint or is that too anti-elite? No, I don't. I, I don't think it's anti-elitist. I do think it is clear um, that some of those schools that are considered elite um, is that they're not necessarily teaching people how to be lawyers. Okay. That's that's a major concern, like the actual practice of law. Uh-huh. Instead, they're they're pushing long theories about how law should be changed for for whatever function, but that's not practical, right? I mean, you're never going to get out right out and can become a judge right away. You would would be a clerk, but you really need to understand the mechanics of being a lawyer. And I think that that is coming across more and more, but I do agree with you. I'm a firm believer in attending different schools for your different degrees, and especially if it's in in different parts of the country, for a variety of reasons, not just for different uh, concepts of thought. Believe me, I think everybody should be exposed to the left and right and make your own decisions accordingly, Um, but but also regions, and that's one thing I I appreciate about the military. Obviously, I'm a military guy, is, is that you go to boot camp and you're with a guy from New York, and you might be from California, um, and you have to understand and appreciate what that person's life experiences are, because guess what? You're going to be sharing a foxhole with yeah. them, yeah. and you and yeah. you and you. Then that only, in my opinion, makes makes America greater rather than the, the yeah. picking and choosing. Of course, uh, I want to issue a warning to anyone who does some education here and then goes to the east. You know, there are certain things they know and assume. I, I got very embarrassed in a law school class once. I didn't know what the tri-state area was, Brett. <laughs> Why would I? Why would I? And I raised my hand using a tri-state. I, I had read a case about how the tri-state area constituted one one issue for, for, for you know, being ser- you know uh, being able to uh, con- be considered the, uh, to, to, to be served and, uh, and operating in that tri-state area, even though they were only in Connecticut. And I thought that that could apply to a Utah, Colorado, Arizona thing. And they all just looked at me. So, yeah, you know, it can have it. Yeah, they have their own regional interests, too, I suppose. Yeah, anyway, yeah, ab- ab- absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But you know what? 
but you, you learn you learn the lesson. Better you to keep it. your mouth so. shut and let them think you're dumb rather than open it up and prove it. I suppose in my case, <laughs> which doesn't work for radio hosts. But Brett Johnson uh, works. Uh, we we learn so much from you when you do open your mouth, and we appreciate you opening your time with us as well. You're a great resource, great treasure. We're delighted uh, to have you uh, every week and in Arizona. Thanks for spending some of your afternoon with us, Brett. Thank you, Seth. Absolutely. I'm Seth Liebson. A lot more coming right up. Don't go away. We will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, portions of which are brought to you by Cool Touch Air Conditioning, Heating, and Plumbing, the only company I and my friends use for all three of those issues. It's a great company. You've heard Chris Funk uh, on this uh, on this uh, channel, uh, giving uh, on this uh, station, giving uh, giving his own testimonials about his company. It's just a fantastic company. From the customer service to the actual service, you'll know you're dealing with just something a little different and a lot better than the rest. Cool Touch Air Conditioning, Heating, and Plumbing for installations, repairs, you name it. CoolTouch.us is where you can find them online. CoolTouch.us, or give them a call at six two three seven four eight. Four nine four two six two three seven four eight four nine four two. Uh, following up on some of what Brett was talking about with us in the previous segments, and uh, Katanji uh, Brown Jackson speaking up at uh, Supreme Court oral argument earlier this week and speaking uh, at such length on a voting rights case uh, with a kind of novel interpretation of the 14th Amendment. I have to tell you, I'm a little concerned. Um, her rendering and interest in going back to a phrase that typically conservatives use, original intent, uh, can be perverted. And uh, it certainly seems like her notion of original atten- intent is uh, being so perverted here. Her view is this. I'll recap encapsulate it. This this should have you not just a little worried, but very worried. Here it is. The 14th Amendment, uh, many of you know what the 14th Amendment is, right? It's all persons born or na- the part we're talking about here. All persons born or naturalized in the U.S. are citizens of the U.S., and no state shall make it or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of the citizens of the United States, nor deprive any person uh, nor shall any state be able to deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to anyone in its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. That's where we get the equal protection uh, clause of the 14th Amendment. And her view, Ketanji Brown-Jackson's view, when it comes to race-based policies or policies where race is at, in- is at issue, whether it's voting rights, one might think possibly uh, affirmative action cases as well, other cases, discrimination cases – Her view is, so the 14th Amendment, which is perhaps one of the most famous post-Civil War amendments, the 14th Amendment was meant to redress a racial wrong. The original intent was to redress a racial wrong. Fair enough. She then, however, makes a leap of logic, which you cannot find in the debates over the ratification of the 14th Amendment. That leap of logic is, since it was intended to redress a racial wrong, we can use race to redress that racial wrong. Think about that. Think about that. If I um, have a car that's meant for transportation, I can do anything I want with that car. 
um, is so far as I call it, moving me from point A to point B. Since the 14th Amendment was meant to redress a racial wrong, we can do anything we want under the or in the guise or under the authority of the 14th Amendment to redress that racial wrong, which means using race as a factor, using race as a criterion uh, for public policy. And as I mentioned to Brett, I said, I'm concerned, I'm very concerned, I'm worried, and I'm very worried because this comes right out of the new class of scholarship uh, that has to do with race issues in America. It comes right out of white fragility from Robin D'Angelo. It comes right out of how to be an anti-racist from Ibram X. Kendi. Uh, the most famous line, I think, in there of Ibram Kendi's is, quote, the only remedy to racist discrimination is anti-racist discrimination. The only remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination. And the only remedy to present, discrimi- present discrimination is future discrimination. So if you take that seriously, be prepared to have race being a factor in law, in admissions, in hiring, in promotion, in any privilege, in any right that is claimed for a long time to come so long as say it with me you're of the right race or the wrong race depending on whose ox is being gored or who the um, interest that is being served is being spoken of if you are a racial minority you will in Kendi's view and D'Angelo's view and perhaps uh, Ketanji Brown Jackson's view if you are uh, in a minority class uh, that is um Acherant favored, uh, so we would be talking uh, African Americans, Hispanic Americans. If you're in those classes, you can use discrimination to aid and assist people in those categories. Doesn't affect Asians, doesn't affect Jews. It might affect women, which is odd because women constitute the majority. But based on previous discrimination, one could see the argument based on this reasoning that because they faced past discrimination. Uh, We can use discrimination. That favors women over men. And yet still there's that weird niggling, nagging thing. Why not Asians? Why not Jews? I'm Seth Leaps, and there's more on this. We'll say when we come right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, portions of which are brought to you by my friends at Y-Refi. They are my friends. They're really good people. If you're worried about stock market volatility, and why wouldn't you be, you can invest in a portfolio with a strong fixed rate of return that is not correlated to the stock market, irrespective of the ups and downs of the stock market. If you're looking for this unique investment opportunity, this kind of unique investment opportunity, check out Y Refi. They are offering a fantastic investment, all in a secure and collateralized portfolio with an up to 10.25% return for investors. And the investment can be in an IRA, can be in a trust, it can be a joint investment, or of course, an individual investment. Why Refi is a due diligence approved firm made up of really great guys who do really well by doing good for others, and you can be a part of that. Check them out at investyrefi.com. The word invest, letter Y, refy.com. Or give them a call at 855 316 They'll never give you a sales pitch. They'll just tell you about what it is that they do and let it speak for itself. If I may go back to uh, some of this ugly stuff that we're talking about when it comes to a judging or judging or assessing or analyzing people 
based by race, which Ketanji Brown-Jackson, Supreme Court Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson, seems to be in favor of, and saying that it is based on the 14th Amendment, it's an awfully odd rendering since the 14th Amendment does speak to the equal protection of the laws. It's also an awfully odd thing if you actually go back and read the debates over the 14th Amendment. It was proposed by uh, a great hero uh, to the Constitution and to American history, one that doesn't get studied enough, an Ohio legislator named um, uh, 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 John Bingham, uh, John A. Bingham uh, from Ohio. It was his handiwork that drafted the 14th Amendment, and on the floor of the House, he closed one of his most famous speeches on behalf of it uh, with some words I want to share with you. They're beautiful words. I don't know if we'll ever get back to this ethic or ethos. Uh, But he titled the name of his speech something that I wish we could etch in front of every court building in America. The title of his speech was One Country, One Constitution, One People. One Country, One Constitution, One People. That doesn't mean different classes of people. That doesn't mean constitutional rights for some people based on X and not others based on X plus one or Y minus one or Y or Z. It doesn't mean anything more than the actual words of what he meant. One country, one constitution, one people. And here is how he concluded that most famous of his speeches, arguing on behalf of the ratification of the 14th Amendment, which he authored. You want original intent? You don't get more original intent than John Bingham. Here's how he closed. He says, representatives, his fellow congressman, to you I appeal that hereafter, by your act, the approval of the loyal people of this country, every man in every state of the Union, in accordance with the written words of your Constitution, may, by the national law, be secured in the equal protection of his personal Rights. Your Constitution provides that no man, no matter what his color, no matter beneath what sky he may have been born, no matter in what disastrous conflict or by what tyrannical hand his liberty may have been cloven down, no matter how poor, no matter how friendless, no matter how ignorant, shall be deprived of life or liberty or property without due process of law. Law in its highest sense, the law which is the perfection of human reason and which is impartial, equal, exact justice. That justice which requires that every man shall have his right. That justice which is the highest duty of nations as it is the imperishable attribute of the God of nations. Your Constitution provides that no man, no matter what his color, no matter what his color, gets the equal protection law. She's going to have a very hard time if she wants to talk original intent of the 14th Amendment being allowed to be used or being as the basis, being held as the basis to be used of judging different races differently. She's going to have a very hard time if she is confronted with the actual words of the drafter of the 14th Amendment, which is how you get to original intent. What were the intentions of the originators of the Law at hand, or the document at hand. You usually hear it having to be the Constitution, constitutional interpretation. The 14th Amendment is now part of the Constitution. If you want to be an original intentist on the 14th Amendment, or an originalist is probably the better way to say it, on the 14th Amendment, then you have to look at what the author of the 14th Amendment wrote, 
said and, in fact, intended. And it was very clearly, very clearly to stop judging people in any respect by race. As I would not be a slave, I would not be a master, Abraham Lincoln put it. That was his view. He said of democracy, it might as well as be his view of equality. What you do not want for yourself, you shall not be able to impose on someone else. The 13th and 14th and 15th Amendments were the post-Civil War amendments dedicated to proving that this country would no longer go down a road where some men or some women or some people could be judged differently based on the crude notion that they were born with a different skin color or ethnicity than others. We have perverted this beyond all description, so perverted it that it's not just racial minorities that can claim uh, preferences and affirmative action. It's preferred kinds of racial minorities, if you will, or unpreferred, depending on how you look at it. This is how we get distortions in the law. But to me, really, it's about distortions in democracy and Republican form of government. We did not go through the throes and convulsions of our history, especially our ugly history with race. We did not go through the convulsions and throes of that history just so that we could take it up again and use race as a battering ram or a tool to make some people more equal than others or give some people more liberty than others all over again. That would be a 360 when when it came to race issues we wanted a 180 i'm seth leaps and don't go away we'll be right back Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Thanks for spending some of your afternoon with us. Did some hefty, heavy stuff today. I'm glad of it and really appreciate you sharing with it. I'll close on something I used in my monologue, uh, as long as we're speaking about race uh, and law. Uh, I was quoting a, a political uh, philosophy. No, I'm sorry, just a philosophy professor, philosophy professor from the University of Michigan, Carl Cohen. If you've heard me use his name before, other than in my monologue, he has the best book on communism, fascism, and democracy, for those of you interested in it. Um, the book tells you what it's about. Its title is Communism, Fascism, and Democracy. We like things that tell you what they are. You can judge a book by that cover. He uh, became quite interested, Carl Cohen did, in issues of racial preferences. And uh, I'll just close with a quote of his that I was using in my monologue uh, for those who try to justify using race now to address historical unfairness. He says, we are constantly reminded that a system of racial judgment has long been unfair to minorities, whereby reverse unfairness is justifiable. It is not. Past injustice in one sphere cannot justify present injustice in another. There is indeed a continuing demand that the opportunity to compete be genuinely equal. In university admission, as in every sphere, minority members must not suffer disadvantage. Right. But in competition for admission to American universities today, that demand is met. Racial minorities are no longer disadvantaged. In this context and others like it, affirmative action taken here to mean giving preference to members of some racial group previously disadvantaged is common. 
Such policies are simply wrong, legally and morally. Affirmative action may have had honorable roots and goals, but the term has become, sadly, the name of injustice and has so much of our law in the hands of so many Humpty Dumpties. I'm just now put in mind of Vladimir Lenin's phrase that you have to break a few eggs to get to an omelet, to which we say a lot of eggs have been broken, and still we ask, where's the omelet? That last part about Humpty Dumpty and the omelet and eggs was mine. All right, folks, until tomorrow, God bless you all. I'm Seth Liebson. Until tomorrow, classes dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.